that as we come together tonight, uh, that you would um, allow us to sense your presence in a very special way. Uh, we pray this would not be a, just a routine Wednesday night. We pray that there would be something unique that we would take away from our study together tonight, and that we would apply to our life, and that we would be able to see the opportunity to encourage someone in the Lord to maybe even share the good news with someone. Father, we pray that uh, we would be intentional about learning and applying your word to our life. Father, thank you for this study, and thank you for uh, just the privilege of being uh, in your word. Father, we pray for all the uh, studies and all the activities and programs and uh, rehearsals that are going on in our, on our campus tonight. We pray that uh, you would just um, bless each and every one, uh, that there would be a, just a unique presence uh, of your spirit, Lord, sensed by uh, each one that's involved and participating. Lord, thank you for Hunter's Glen. Thank you, Lord, that we can be a lighthouse on the corner. Lord, thank you that you, you've called us to be salt and light, and we pray that we would be just that in a, in a, in a world that is hurting and in a world that is dark. So, Lord, thank you for the hope that we have in Christ, and, Lord, thank you for uh, the privilege that we know is ours as we go sharing the good news. So, Lord, thank you for tonight. Bless it. Use it for uh, your glory and for our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor. Thank you, Jody. I still love how you call me the pastor. I'm a pastor, one among many, many, many. I want you to do something tonight. Take your Bibles, if you have them, or your iPhones, or your iPads, or your photographic memories, or whatever those are, and turn to John 1. Just keep your Bible open to John 1. We're going to be in John 1 for a little bit tonight. If you were with us last Wednesday, we talked about Jesus and tried to answer the question as we've been answering these questions on Wednesday night, who is Jesus? Um, we're going to continue that tonight, so keep your Bible open to John 1. Next week, next Wednesday night, we will be completing our questions that non-believers ask by talking about the subject of biblical miracles. Uh, have you ever had somebody ask you the question, is it possible for a, a river to turn to blood or the Red Sea to be able to part or the Jordan River to stop flowing or a fish to have a coin in its mouth or a person to walk on water? We can go down through the list. Have you ever had anybody ask you that question or doubt the Bible because what we read in the Bible about miracles contradicts what we as human beings see every day. You know, we don't see those things every day, but then the Bible paints the picture of these miraculous events that happen that are so central to the scriptures, and we're going to talk about that next week. So I want you to be back, be in your spot. For those of you that have been frustrated with me for not having a handout, I will have one for you next week. It'll be about 50 questions, and so you'll never want to hand out from me again, but uh, we'll tackle that next week. Before we jump into the study, though, tonight, I want to ask you a question. I know the answer because I've asked our deacons the question, and the deacons couldn't answer the question. So don't worry if you can't answer it. Even though we have some deacons in here, 
And I'm going to call in one of our new deacons, Bill Wimberly, who's sitting right here, who's smiling, to, to, uh, to verify if this is true. Somebody verbatim, without missing a word, word for word, tell us what our church mission statement is. See, I, I asked that question at the deacons meeting. I said, I've been with you for three plus years and you still can't say it? Um, well, you can get close, but you can't get there. So let me ask you this. Can you say this? Real people sharing a real Jesus. Can you say that? Let me hear you. All right. So because you love Jesus, the church, and the pastor, and you're here on Wednesday night, you're getting a precursor of what I'm going to be sharing on Sunday morning. On Sunday morning, I'm going to be sharing a, a message called, Where in the World Are We Going? It's a message about Hunter's Glen, about what's going to come down our way, down the pike on, in 2020. And I'm going to be sharing uh, some strategic, uh, really strategic steps that our church is going to take in 2020. And, uh, but one of the things we're going to talk about is a simplified mission. And that mission is real people. You've already forgotten. Real people sharing a real Jesus. And, uh, you know, here at Hunter's Glen, we have taken a lot of time over the last couple of years, and we've talked about the reality of being real. You know, um, I was in a meeting today, and somebody had to leave. They had to go do something with a family member, and uh, that family member had just got some really bad news, and they had to go be and love on that family member. Um, a person that's connected here at Hunter's Glen, I, I won't share, but uh, uh, because I haven't had permission, but, but every single week I hear of people that are carrying some really heavy weights, right? You are in your life, I assure you, you are. If you're not, you're a liar, and you're, you can hide your feelings really well. Um, somebody said, and I can't remember who it was, uh, but somebody said, this is a, a long time ago, that there is a broken heart in every pew of every church. And the truth is, is that there really is. There's broken hearts in every pew. We smile and we paint our faces and dress up and we act like we're okay, but we're all, in, in a sense, broken people and we live in a broken and fallen world. And so we're real, right? We can be real. Now, that's not an excuse to say, love me the way I am. I'm just real. No, God loves you the way you are, but he loves you too much to keep you that way. So uh, we, we want the Lord to work on us, but we do know that we're real people, and we want people that come to Hunter's Glen to know that we're real people, that we're real people. And they don't have to put on a special face or a fake smile um, or some outward resemblance of being all together to come to Hunter's Glen. They can come as they are. And I hope you in here, and I know you are, uh, because this is the most spiritual crowd in the church because you're here tonight. But I hope that you feel that way. And I hope that when you look at people, what you see, um, you realize there's a lot going on beneath the surface. So we've used that word, that word real. We're just real people. Um, but what makes the difference in our lives and what can make the difference in another person's life is a personal relationship with a real Jesus. And when we talk about a real Jesus, we're not talking about a story. We're not talking about a biblical fable. We're not talking about some made-up 
stuff. We're talking about a historical Jesus who lived and died and was raised from the dead and is coming again one day to reign on this earth. So we're talking about real people sharing a what? A who? A real Jesus. And so that's our mission. And that's got to govern everything that we do here at Hunter's Glen. So if you're here tonight, you're listening online, we've tuned it on, we've turned it on yet? It's on. It's already on. That's awesome. I've just been babbling while we're already online. But uh, if you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, you can have a personal relationship with Jesus by giving your heart and your life to him. And the Bible says so clearly that there is one prayer for certain that God always hears, and it is a prayer prayed in faith. And what is that prayer? Lord, save me. And if you pray that prayer in faith, and receive Christ, he'll save you and change your life. So that's what I'm going to talk about Sunday. So you don't have to come. You've already heard it. No, there's a... L- Brother, there's a, there's a lot more to that. So we're going to have a great time together. If you missed Sunday night, you totally missed out in our All Nations Night of Worship. Randall, are you just thirsty, brother? You're drinking out of a milk jug, man. Somebody make sure that's water in that milk jug. Man, alive. I had that. Man, you're young. You get to be some of our ages in here. You drink that, you're up 37 times in the middle of the night. You drink that at 642, let me just tell you. But uh, um, so (laughs) we're real. I'm just being real. Uh, We had such a great time on Sunday night, All Nations Night of Worship. Wasn't it a special time? It was so special. We had a great time. So if you missed, and I'm not going to call out anybody for missing, if you missed two weeks from, to, from Sunday, one week from this coming Sunday, so the last Sunday of October, which is the 27th, we're going to have the Lord's Supper. And it is going to be, we planned that service today. It's, very, it's going to be a really special service. But as part of that service, um, we had some folks from our, our uh, Crosspoint Indian Church saying in Hindi, and they're going to sing in that morning service. So there's going to be a little taste of heaven at our Lord's Supper service, and it's a really wonderful song they sang called Thank You. And for those of you that can't speak Hindi, uh, which is most everyone except maybe one or two maybe uh, in here, but if you can't speak Hindi, we're going to have the words in English, and it's a beautiful song. So we're going to do that on the 27th, and I can tell by the looks on all your faces how excited you are. So... uh, just a couple of things that are, that are coming your way. Don't forget to bring your candy for our Fall Fun Fest. It's going to be a fun time. Um, and uh, we need a couple bags of candy each of us brings it. You've probably already brought candy. So anyway, we give a lot of candy away. All right, so we're in John chapter 1. And uh, 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 to begin with, um, I want you to take another finger, though, and I want you to turn over to Colossians chapter 1. So I want you to keep one finger in John 1 and one finger in Colossians 1. Now, last week we started talking about this, and so we're just going to do a very quick review. But I want to remind you that when we look at the New Testament and we're trying to understand who Jesus is in the New Testament, what the New Testament says about Jesus, there are four passages in the Bible that speak specifically of who Christ is. And if you were with us, you Remember that I shared with you, they are John 1, Philippians 2, Colossians 1, and Hebrews 1. Um, We're not going to look at the other two passages in Philippians 2 and Hebrews chapter 1, 
But if you want to write those down, you should. And go back and familiarize yourself with the texts. John 1, Philippians 2, Colossians 1, and Hebrews chapter 1. You look at those four passages and they'll help you. But we began last week by just looking at John chapter, excuse me, Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. And I want to begin in verse 13 and just read, because it's such a glorious passage of Scripture. And I, I want to read it to you again to refresh our minds. Listen to how Paul uh, describes Jesus. He says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption. Uh, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy, blameless, and above, above reproach before him. If you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I became a minister. Now, we started last week by talking about the, uh, the, the message that Paul is proclaiming in Colossians chapter 1, and he gives us a number of headings to help us understand it. And we talked, first of all, about heading number one, Jesus is the Savior. And we see that in verse 13 and verse 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. And he has granted to us redemption, which is the forgiveness of sins. And so we uh, talked last week briefly what this verse does to a lot of the viewpoints that people have in culture. And we talked about how this passage puts to rest or at least confronts this idea of universalism. And that universalism simply means that everybody's ultimately going to be saved. doesn't matter what you believe. And I gave you an illustration. Somebody can remember it about going to the post office and you go different directions and you get to the same place. Uh, but we're not going to the post office when we die. And the Bible makes it so clear that there is only one Savior. And Paul cannot be more clear in Colossians 1, 13, and 14. It is he who delivers us. It is he who transfers us. It is he who redeems us. And it is he who forgives us. Uh, secondly, it reminds us, or, or it uh, helps us to understand that deism, which is a viewpoint that states that God is up there, um, but, not, uh, but he's not down here. So God is up there and out there, but he's not down here. He doesn't care about us. You know, God created the world, and so there is a God, but he created the world, and after that, God was done, and he doesn't have anything to do with us. And yet the Bible says that he, being the Lord Jesus, is the one who has come to dwell among us. That's where, if you look over just for a moment at John chapter 1, you can read that uh, John uh, states that Verse 14, for example, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
you go back to chapter uh, 1, verse 1, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. More on that in just a moment, but John is talking about Jesus, and he says, the Word dwelt among us. If you've been in Bible study uh, through the years and you've studied John chapter 1, you realize that the idea of dwelling means he pitched his tent. And it's a very uh, a picturesque way of saying that he came and he didn't just come to, to come and hang out for a while, but he came to, to make his home among us. And the Bible clearly um, helps us to understand that. So this viewpoint that God created the world and then he kind of stepped out of it, uh, John uh, hits it and does Paul. And then fatalism, which sim simply says all things are predetermined and inevitable. The world's just going to go the way the world's going to go. Uh, there's nothing you can do about it. And yet the New Testament says that if you call upon the name of the Lord, you can be saved. The way that you're living doesn't mean need to be the way that you're dying. There can be a transformation that can take place in your heart and in your life. And uh, so he has come to deliver us and he has come to transfer us into his kingdom. And so the great hope of the message that we have as a church is that at anyone at any time, if they will simply acknowledge who Jesus Christ is, repent of their sins and believe, cry out to the Lord, Lord, save me, that he will instantaneously change uh, their heart and give them a brand new future and a new direction uh, to travel. So Jesus is the Savior. Then secondly, Jesus is the Revealer. And so as we kind of walk through some of these, did we get this far? Uh, we did. So we started talking a little bit about Jesus being the Revealer. And we talked about something, it's very small print, but we talked about a viewpoint called mysticism. Uh, mysticism is the belief that direct knowledge and contact with God or whatever ultimate reality is can only be obtained through subjective experience. In other words, uh, whoever God is and whatever ultimate reality is, I have to somehow subjectively determine how to get there. Uh, so through meditation or through some other means. And yet, Paul writes, he is the image of the invisible God. If you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. If you want to have a relationship with God, you have to have a relationship uh, with Jesus. He is the image, the exact representation is what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 1. If you want to write that down as a parallel passage, I gave that to you just a moment ago. And so he is the image, the exact representation of God. If you want to know who God is, you want to, you want to know what God looks like, then look at the person in the work of Jesus. Uh, cultism is a movement uh, that claims some relationship to Christianity, but denies the eternal deity of the Son of God, the full sufficiency of his honing work on the cross and the Bible as our sole authority. And yet, what does Colossians 1.15 say? Colossians 1.15 says, he is the image of the invisible God. He's not a God. He's not a representative of God or one of God's many representatives. He is God. John 1, we'll come back to that in a moment. Um, it also denies atheism, the worldview that says there, are no, uh, there is no God uh, or there are no gods. And then agnosticism, the worldview that says we cannot know whether God exists or doesn't exist. And we talked about that at the beginning of our time last week. I know I'm going through this quickly. Remember I shared with you what... Uh, Curtis Vaughn, uh, seminary professor for many years at Southwestern Seminary, said, he said, the affirmations of the passage are all the more remarkable when we remember that they were written of one who only 30 years earlier had died on a Roman cross. 
And so, again, obviously, as Paul wrote, he understood and recognized uh, that there was something special about Jesus. So what does this mean then practically? Well, let's talk about it practically. And again, I think this is where we stopped last week, so we're now picking up. But practically, what does this mean? It means, number one, to look into the face of Jesus revealed in the Scripture is to look into the face of God himself. Uh, Jesus said in John 14, 9, he who has seen me has seen the Father. I've heard people say, nowhere in the Bible did Jesus ever claim to be God. If they say that, they haven't read John 14, 9. John 14, 9, Jesus says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Remember the question? Remember the disciples were talking to Jesus? And Thomas, I think it was, he said, Lord, show us the Father. And it'll be enough for us. And Jesus says, well, listen, if you have seen me, guess what? You have seen the Father, John uh, 14, 9. So again, that echoes what we read in Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God. It echoes what we read in Hebrews chapter 1. He is the exact representation of his being. Yet the Bible continually shows us that to look into Jesus is to look in the face of God himself. Secondly, humans may be created in God's image, but there is a special sense in which Jesus Christ is God's image. So again, you and I are created in the uh, in the image of God, and so we have certain characteristics about us because we were created in the image of God. We have breath, we have the ability to think, we have the ability to love, we have the ability to obey, uh, we have the ability to appreciate creation, all of these creative faculties because we're created uniquely in the image of God. And I hate to tell you this, your, your, your dog was not created in the image of God. Uh, I know some of us think they sleep on our bed, they eat our food, they ride in our cars. We have two dogs. We love our dogs. Uh, they have already destroyed our brand new floors in our home, our wooden floors. We still love them, um, even though there are moments that we hate them. But our dogs were not created in the image of God. My dog does not know he's going to die. A, a dog doesn't have the awareness of that. Nowhere do we read that the animals do. The animals don't have grief. I know that animals love and, we, and, and all of that, but, but animals don't have the cognitive ability to be able... Now, they're smart, trust me. They're smart, and they're, they're evil, right? And, and they do things to spite you, you know, and all of that. But remember that human beings are the only creation of God who have an awareness that they're going to die, that, they, that we're finite human beings. But yet animals don't have that awareness. Just parenthetically, human beings are the only creation of God who have an awareness of their, of their finiteness and their death, and yet human beings do everything they can not to think about their death and to postpone thoughts about it and, and not make plans for it and do everything in this life as uh, we've talked about in the treasure principle, we, we do everything in this life uh, for the dot, not for the line. The dot being what leads up to our death. The line is what happens way after our death. So we don't invest in the things before the, the dot. We invest ultimately in things after the dot. Isn't that what Jesus said? Jesus said, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Don't lay up stuff in a sense of placing all your hope in those things on this side of the dot, place your hope on the line that extends beyond the dot out into eternity. And so human beings were created in, get God's image, 
but Jesus is, crea- uh, was, uh, is God's image. You get the difference? We're in God's image. Jesus is God's image. You look at Jesus, you see God. You look at me, you don't always see God. Even though in looking in the face of a human being, you see the image of God. We're image bearers, which, by the way, doesn't that underscore reality for people? Everybody is special in the sight of God. Everybody is special in the sight of God. We all have value. We all have dignity. It doesn't matter where you're from or what you look like or uh, what your uh, socioeconomic status is in life. Everybody has value. And uh, it's easy for us to say that, but it's very difficult for us sometimes to take the step to demonstrate that. And you're going to hear more about that Sunday, about how important it is as a church that we begin to love compassionately people who don't look like us. Now listen, let me tell you, if I walk into a room and I want to sit at a table, I'm going to find people I want to hang out with because I like to have conversations with people that I want to have conversations with. You all sit with the same people and hang out in the same groups. Um, And that's great. We love to be around people we love to be around. But we also need to be mindful that there are a lot of people that don't look like us that need love, need affirmation, need our time, need our interest, need our involvement in their lives because there's a broken heart. In every chair, there's a broken heart. In every pew, there's a broken heart. In every table. Have you ever had bad service at a restaurant and you get frustrated by it? You know, and you're tempted to pour salt all over the table or as I saw somebody posted on Facebook, somebody wrote, no tip, bad service with the ketchup bottle, with the squirt, squirty ketchup bottle. You know, I mean, I, I, I get it. You expect the service because you're paying for it or whatever. But at the same time, you don't know what that person's dealing with. You don't know what's going on in that person's life. And uh, as Christians, we've got to remember that we are God's image bearers, that person that's waiting on you, that person you hate, that person on the other side of the political aisle is an image bearer. Um, But again, when we want to see what God looks like and who God is, the only place we can look is at the person of Jesus Christ because he is the exact representation of his image. And so John Calvin states, he says, Christ is the image of God because he makes God visible to us. Because of this, we must be careful not to seek God elsewhere, for outside of Christ, all that claims to represent God will turn out to be an idol. And in reality, that's what a lot of us do. A lot of us look for what only God can give us in something else. We try to find uh, uh, the belonging, the meaning, the stability, the significance, the, the, the peace, whatever it is, we try to find it in the creation rather than in the creator. And if we look anywhere else, we're ultimately going to be disappointed, sorely disappointed, uh, because in Christ we can only find uh, the fullness of God and who he is and what he desires for us and what he uh, means to us. So number three, then, in Colossians 1, we read that Jesus is the creator. Now, are you following the logic? I know we're walking through this quickly, but I want you to kind of capture a little bit of the logic. So who is Jesus? He's the Savior. Who is Jesus? Number two, he's the creator. Um, No, number three is creator. Who is he, number two? He's the revealer. So number one, he is the savior. Number two, he is the revealer. In other words, we want to see God, but Jesus is also the creator. So that's number three. 
So let's look at verses 15 through 17. Really, um, the second half of verse 15, but we'll read the first half just to keep the flow. He is the image of the invisible God, and then he says he is the firstborn of all creation. Uh, the, the idea of firstborn, we chatted about this a little bit in the past. The idea of firstborn is that Jesus isn't the first one who was ever born. There were a lot of people that were born before Jesus. Um, you know, he's not the firstborn in the sense of firstborn. He is the firstborn in, in the sense of preeminence. He is the rightful heir, okay? And that is really important. So it places, uh, th that statement, firstborn, places him in the rightful place of being the, uh, the, 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 the rightful heir, the owner of, 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 of all things. So he says in verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. Okay, so let's just take this at face value. What does it say? What does Paul say? Paul says that Jesus Christ, by him and for him, created everything. And to make it clear, Paul says thrones, dominions, visible, invisible, rulers, authorities, and then he states it again, all things were created through him and for him. Do you notice the argument? For by him all things were created, and he ends with all things were created through him and for him in verse 16. So let's take this at face value. If this is true, if Jesus is the creator, okay, what does it mean? Well, it denies the theory of evolution, which states that scientific theory uh, is the scientific theory that states that all living organisms developed and diversified through time and chance and natural selection and survival of the fittest without divine aid or in, uh, intervention. If, if, if all of us are here because of time plus chance plus matter all coming together through a unique set of circumstances and through an evolutionary process without any divine intervention, well, you can't believe that if you understand what Colossians 1, uh, 16 and 17 says. Uh, secondly, it denies naturalism, and naturalism is the argument that the natural material world is all that exists. So if the natural material world is all that exists, in other words, there's no God, there's no creator, it's just all here by accident, then Colossians 1 is, uh, Paul, when he wrote Colossians 1, is highly mistaken. So when you think about this, Warren Wearsby, many of you have his commentary set, his B-series, or you have read some of his devotional things. He is a, a, prolific, a, a, pro, a prolific Bible expositor. He states, when it comes to creation, Jesus Christ is the primary cause, that is, he planned it. He is the instrumental cause, he produced it, and he is the final cause. He did this for his own pleasure. That's exactly what Paul is saying. He's saying he is the creator of all things because by him all things were created. For him all things were created. And then he even says through him, in verse 17, um, and in him all things hold together. So again, Jesus is the primary cause, the instrumental cause, and the final cause of all creation. Paul makes that so clear. H.C.G. Um, Mool, who is another scholar, New Testament scholar, says Jesus keeps the cosmos from becoming chaos. And I love that. 
because he has a divine uh, plan and a divine order for how he has created everything. Let's just keep going for a second. What else does this mean? Well, it means if he made everything, that he cannot be a creature. So uh, we'll, we'll come to this. There's a particular uh, viewpoint, a particular group of people that come and knock on your door and uh, want to visit with you, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, who claim that Jesus was created. We'll come to that in a moment. But if he made everything, he couldn't be a creator. Here's a great little way to, to do this. If you were to take a line, and on one side you have uncreated things, and on the other line you have created things, okay? Y'all following me? All right. So a line on the paper, created things, uncreated things. You, you, so if you wrote on uncreated things, what are you going to write on the left, in the left column? You're going to write, wh what was uncreated? God, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one, right? Infinite, un, uh, uh, uncreated. Uh, uh, so uh, the, the, we talked about the existence of God, the prime mover, the unmoved mover, the uncaused cause, whatever you want to look at. God, God never had a cause. God's, God is a necessary being. He's not a contingent being, right? We're, we're contingent beings, uh, but God is a necessary being. So in order for us to exist, there had to be someone that started us. So you write on this side. Okay, so then what are you going to write on the right-hand column? You're going to write everything that's created. Now, if Jesus was created, how can Jesus be in the left column where he was uncreated and in the right column where he was created? You can't be in both columns. And what does the Bible teach us? What does the Bible say about Jesus? He was uncreated. He was with God. We'll come to this, John 1, in the beginning. So he, if he made everything, he cannot be a creature. Um, Paul, the first century Jew, would only know the God of Genesis as creator. Remember, Paul, before Paul uh, became a follower of Christ, he was, he was an adamant Jew. He was, a, as he describes himself, he was a Jew among Jews, right? He was a keeper of the law. Well, a Jew living in the first century, apart from the, the, the understanding of the coming of Christ, which the Jewish people had a very difficult time and still do, understanding who he is, a Jew living in the first century would only know of one God, right? the creator God, Genesis 1.1. Isn't it interesting that when Paul, who wrote, writes for us most of the New Testament, begins to write about Jesus, he clearly and emphatically goes to great lengths to tell us that Jesus is the creator, that he, that he, is, that he is God. So Paul, in making the statement that he makes in Colossians chapter 1, is making a very strong statement. Now, I mentioned this to you a moment ago. The Jehovah's Witnesses and the Watchtower's New World Translation of the Scriptures see a problem in John chapter 1. If you'll go there for just a moment, I want you to, uh, to go over to, uh, to John chapter 1 for a second. Um, and I just want to read to you a portion of John chapter 1, and then uh, we're going to come back to Colossians chapter 1. But if you go to John chapter 1, you read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the Greek language, verse 1 doesn't have a definite article. Uh, so you would read it, if it had a definite article before God, it would be the Word was the God. Um, so Jehovah's Witnesses claim that because there is no definite article, that verse 1 should be read, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was, and they slip in a little letter, a God. 
And they do this to meet their theological presupposition that Jesus was created. Now, when you read their translation, going back now for a moment over to Colossians chapter 1, when you read in Colossians chapter 1, and specifically if you look at verses 16 through 20, um, you, they insert a word in brackets, and it's it, five times it's the word other. For by him other things were created. In heaven, on earth, uh, invisible, um, verse 17, um, and he is before all other things. In other words, they insert the word other to emphasize that Jesus wasn't the creator, but he is another one of the created things. It's a really interesting way. Those aren't in the original language. And so they insert the word other to say uh, other things besides him or rather not besides him, but along with him were created. Um, that word other is inserted in the text, not written in the text. Okay. So if you begin with a theological presupposition that Jesus was created just like we are, you can't find that in the Bible. You're going to have to do whatever you can to make that fit. By the way, go back, just turn over, you didn't lose your space. Go back over to John chapter 1 for just a moment. And, and I want you to see something in John chapter 1. The, the omission of the definite article before God um, is almost a, there's, we could talk about some Greek, but we're not going to get into that. But there is a really, uh, uh, I just want you to look at this from face value, and there's a real strong argument uh, to make for Jesus being God just by the, the way that Paul describes this. Not only a strong argument, he states the obvious, but I want you to see this. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, if you put the definite article in there and you said the Word was the God, it would make a distinction between the Word and God in a way, or it wouldn't make the distinction between the Word and God in the way that we do when we talk about the Trinity. So we believe that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are all God. We believe there is one God, but God manifests himself in three persons. Um, Paul, I, excuse me, John, I believe, makes a very strong argument in John chapter 1, verse 1, that Jesus is God, but he is also the Son of God. I know that's a hard concept to follow. So John is making an argument here that the Word, Jesus, the Word, verse 1, was with God, and the Word, at the end of verse 1, was God. And I think he goes to length three times to identify the Word being separate, the Word being with God, and then he says, but the Word was God. Uh, that's uh, just, a, just a little overview. What John is going to great lengths to do is he's trying to tell us that Jesus is creator, that he is creator. We'll talk more about this in a second. I think it'll maybe help a little bit. So when you look at the spiritual world and the material world, he made them. Everything that exists, exists for Jesus, and everything that exists, exists uh, by Jesus. And that's the clear uh, message of Colossians 1, John 1, Hebrews 1, Philippians 2. 
The Father is the author of creation. The Son is the architect of creation. The Spirit is the agent of creation. Creation is Trinitarian through and through. Okay? A way to look at this when you try to understand the Trinity is this. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are all one. God is not Jesus. Jesus is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father in the sense of this. They're one, they're one and the same, but they're each three persons in the Trinity. So they're separable but inseparable. Uh, somebody has tried to explain the Trinity by describing it as, uh, as uh, there's every human I- illustration uh, fails. For example, um, I am a son. I have a mom. I am a pastor. I'm, as Jody says, I'm the pastor. And I am a dad, but I'm still Mark. Uh, or somebody will say that an ice cube is water, steam is water, and water is water. Or an egg, you have a shell, and you have a yolk, uh, white, and then you have the yolk. The problem with that is, is each of those is unique and distinct, but it's not the same. You got the point? So... When we talk about Jesus, Jesus is God. Jesus, uh, the Holy Spirit is God. God the Father is God. But yet each of the uh, three persons in the Godhead are unique and distinct. So they are three, but they are one at the same time. And any human analogy crumbles at that point. So... uh, But John is trying to make the point, and and Paul makes the point, that Jesus created everything. Why could he? How could he? How was it possible that he created everything? The Word was with God, but the Word was also God. The Word wasn't the God in the sense of the, the Word being the same as God and only because there's only one God, but the word was with God in the sense that there are three persons to the tree. Y'all got that? Y'all got that clear? Yeah. It's one of the hardest things to, to, uh, uh, to describe. And one of the reasons why the, yeah, I'll answer in a second. Uh-huh. What do you mean define? It's logos in Greek. And the idea of the logos it's a Greek word that could mean reason. Um, it's a word that describes um, uh, the, the sum total of, of, of understanding. Um, uh, it's, it's, uh, there's, there's two words in the Greek that speak of word. One is rhema, which is like a word that I'm speaking. And then there's logos. And there's substance to logos. There's reason to logos. Uh, there's there's uh, uh, understanding in logos. It's a really difficult word to define, humanly speaking, or in English language. But... Uh, but he did. It is, and, and of course it would be. Yes, of course, the word logos, the logos, um, you know, uh, trying to, uh, uh, what, when you think about the word, like for example, biology, bio or bios is life, logos, the study of life, right? So we talk about that. But logos is more than just the study of. Logos is the sum total of understanding of something. And uh, so John takes the word logos 
in a sense, baptizes it by pulling it into the New Testament and says the height of everything that's created, the, the sum totality of everything that we can know, uh, the sum totality of every bit of knowledge and understanding is wrapped up in who Jesus is. He is the logos. He is the word. He is the pinnacle of all human understanding, of all human achievement, uh, and even greater than that. So yeah, it's a great, it's a great um, um, insight uh, concerning the word that he uses. So again, just think about it this way. The Father is the author, the Son is the architect, the Spirit is the agent, creation is Trinitarian, uh, God the Father, God the Son, three in one, but unique in each of their, uh, the, the work that they perform and the things that they do, and each unique in their person. So when we speak of the Holy Spirit, we're speaking of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. When we speak of God, we're speaking of the person and, and the work of who God is. When we speak of Jesus, we're speaking of the person and the work of the Son. Is Jesus God? Yes. Is the Spirit God? Yes. Is God God? Yes. Are they one? Yes. Are they three? Yes. <laughs> That's what the Bible teaches. One of the reasons why the Jehovah's Witnesses have such a hard time with the tr Trinity is they say that it's not found in the Bible. He said you don't find the word Trinity in, in, in the Bible. Uh, but the, the concept of the Trinity is, is, is saturates the Bible. Uh, it's just difficult for us uh, to, to, uh, to comprehend and to understand. But again, so Paul in Colossians John, in John chapter 1, is not making the point that Jesus was a God. He's making the point that Jesus was God. And in fact, in the Greek language, the word order is reversed in John chapter 1. He says, the text literally reads, God was the word. And so if you just read it in the, in the reverse order, which it's written in the Greek language, he's, the emphasis is on God was the word. So he's emphasizing the deity uh, of Christ. Good, good question on the Logos. So let's move on then to a next statement about who Jesus is. He is not only the creator, but he is the leader, the leader. So John, back to, excuse me, Colossians 1, 18 through 20. Let's go uh, back there if I can get my spot back there. And let's uh, pick up in verse 18. Sorry, I lost my spot. So let's look again now at verse 18. Uh, verse 17, we'll just finish out the thought in verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Just make one note there. Um, what holds the world together? Jesus holds the world together, right? He is the one that keeps this whole thing from going south. Um, not only did he create everything, not only did he um, uh, put all things together, but he is the one that holds all things together. And uh, so he is not only the creator, but he sustains it all. But, but notice what he says about him being the leader, verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So notice that Paul says that Jesus is the leader. He is the head of the church, 
the firstborn from the dead. Again, the word firstborn isn't that he wasn't the first one raised from the dead because he, uh, in, in that sense, he wasn't. Who else was raised from the dead? Lazarus was raised from the dead, right? So he, it, it's not talking about in the sense of being the first one. It's of all those who have been raised from the dead, he is preeminent. Same idea with he is the firstborn over all creation. He is preeminent over all creation. So he is the firstborn um, uh, from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So what does this deny? It denies radical individualism, which states that life is all about me. I am the captain of my own ship, and I am the Lord of my own destiny. How many of you have heard somebody say that you can be anything you want to be? If the, I used to hear, we used to have on the wall of the weight room in the, in the locker room that if the man can believe it, the, uh, the mind can believe it, the man can achieve it, right? Well, I mean, I, you know, I believe that I could lift 500 pounds, but I never was able to do that. I mean, there's a limit to what I'm able to do, right? And so this idea that you can be whatever you want to be, I understand the premise behind that, and the premise is we live in a land of opportunity. The same opportunity is afforded to all of us. We all have the chance to do what we um, want to do with our life. But ultimately, that is a lie. That is a radical individualism that permeates our culture that says that, that I have the, the ability to direct and determine my own steps to do whatever I want to do, however I want to do it. I can live the way I want, do what I want, say what I want, be what I want. And the answer is no, you can't. You can only be, do, uh, achieve what God allows you to achieve. And, um, you know, I, I think about the temptation of Jesus. You think about the temptation of Jesus. What it, remember, remember Jesus is out in the wilderness. He hasn't eaten, right? And he's hungry, and he's about to, to, to embark on this mission that God has called him to, to that ultimately will culminate in the cross. He's got all that on his mind. He's got all that on his heart. On top of that, he has no food. The devil comes to him, and the devil says, uh, why don't you, if you're hungry, do what? Turn this stone into bread. And what is Jesus' response to him? He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What Satan wanted to tell Jesus to do was, listen, you have the ability to satisfy yourself. Why don't you be the captain of your own ship, the, the, the leader of your own life, and why don't you do this now and satisfy your hunger? And Jesus said, listen, I don't survive because I eat bread. I survive because God allows me to survive. You, you see the difference? A lot of us believe, listen, I, I, experience, uh, I experience great blessing in life because I work hard and I have a job that pays the bills. Well, that may be what pays the bills, but there is the hand of God behind the scenes that created the job, that gave you the skills, that created your life, that gives you the breath to do the job that you do. You don't, 
you don't send your kids to college because you work really hard. You send your kids to college because God has blessed you with a job and God has blessed you with ability and blessed you with an education and blessed you with the opportunities that he has given you. You don't live because you eat bread. You live because God sustains your life and in so doing, God gives you bread to eat. You get the point? And so that's why Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer, he said, when you pray, say, Father, I, 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 I thank you today for my daily bread because you're the provider of the bread. It's not the daily bread that sustains me. It's your sustaining hand behind it. You get, you see, and that's how, but our world tells us if you work hard enough, you get an education, you live in the right place, you can be anything you want to be. And that's not true. That is not true. And the lie in our world is also if you work harder, you're going to be more successful. And the reason that people are poor is they don't work hard enough. How, how many times have you heard that? Now, that may be true. The Bible says, you know, a lot about laziness and, and all of that. But let me ask you about the person in Bangladesh who was born in a country with not the same opportunities as we have. And all they do every day is get out and sell trinkets on the street. What if they get up at 3 o'clock and get out there and work from 3 o'clock in the morning until midnight the next night? What if they work 18, 20 hours a day? They have to work harder, get out there and try to sell the trinkets, but they're in a particular place where there's nobody going to buy their trinkets. It, the, the lie is if you work harder, you'll be more successful. You have the ability to change your fate and your destiny. And yes, there's a part of that. You know, if you're lazy, there'll be repercussions. If you don't take advantage of opportunity, there'll be repercussions. But ultimately, who is the one who gives us what we have? It is, it is God. And so Jesus then, Colossians 1.18, is, uh, is the head of the body. He is the, the, the leader of the church. He's the beginning of the firstborn from the dead. The fullness of God is in him. And he leads us uh, to reconciliation and he leads us to peace by the blood of the cross. You see, Jesus Christ is first over creation because he made creation. And Jesus Christ is first over the church because he saved the church. You see that? He is over the church because he saved it. He is over creation because he made it. And that's Paul's exact argument in Colossians 1.18. Warren Wiersbe says again, few would deny the importance of Jesus Christ. They would simply dethrone him. They would give him prominence, but not preeminence. And C.S. Lewis's argument has always been, you either accept him as the Lord that he is, um, or otherwise he's a liar or he's a lunatic, uh, which option are you going to choose? And a lot of times people say, well, no, I'll take the option that he was just a good man. And C.S. Lewis says, no, that option is not available. Nowhere does the New Testament ever teach that Jesus was just a good teacher and a good man. Uh, the New Testament teaches that he is Lord. Either he was a liar, and what we read in the New Testament is hoist, uh, uh, hoisting the biggest, hoisting the biggest lie on all of humanity, or he was a lunatic that he thought he was God and went to the cross and died, and you know he's 
uh, was in a tomb, and that was the end of his life, or he is the Lord. B.B. Warfield, theologian, says, the very deity of God, that which makes God God in all of its completeness, has its permanent home in our Lord, and that in a bodily fashion. That is, it is in him clothed with a body. He who looks upon Jesus Christ sees, no doubt, a body in a man. But as he sees the man clothed with the body, so he sees God himself in all the fullness of his deity, clothed with humanity. What a great way to put it. And then lastly, Jesus is the master. So that's what Paul gets to in Colossians 1, 21 through 23. And you who are once alienated and hostile in your mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body uh, of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach if you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, uh, not shifting from the hope of the gospel which you have heard. What does this deny? Well, this denies, denies egoism. Uh, egoism is an ethical theory that treats an individual's personal self-interest as the foundation of morality. In other words, whatever is good for me is good for me, and whatever is good for you is good for you. Have you heard anybody say that? It is my own personal morality. It is my own personal decision. It, it's, it's, it's up to me. And, you know, if it's, it's up to you, it's up to you, it's up to me, it's up to you. And what is Paul saying? Paul is saying there is no way to, uh, to, 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 to experience a relationship with God for the alienation to be removed, for the reconciliation of your sin to be made right with God, to be presented holy and blameless before God uh, apart from Christ. Uh, it, it, th there is nothing in you that has the ability to do what only Jesus can do for you. So again, I wanted us to take just a few minutes to look again at Colossians 1. No, Jesus is not just another one of God-created things. He is not, a, uh, he is not uh, another manifestation of God's creation. He is not a God among other gods that were created. He is God. The Word was God. The Word was with God in the beginning. And He is the Creator um, over all creation. He is the, the Lagos. He is the height of everything, um, uh, every human um, uh, understanding, every human uh, um, uh, desire, uh, er everything that uh, we long to know and understand about ourselves and about God, we can find in the person and work of Christ. That's who the Bible says that he is. Uh, questions or comments or observations? Totally confused, totally baffled. What about that egg again, preacher? And, and uh, what about that ice and the steam? And, uh, and uh, yes, sir. Oh, same thing. So the Jehovah's Witnesses' basic argument is John 1. Okay, again, they look at the absence of the definite article and they say, oh, you're not talking about you're not talking about the God. You're not talking about God himself. They would say because that, you know, you're not talking about um, the one true and living God. So because that, the, the definite article is not in verse 1, okay, they, argue, they would argue that the word A should be inserted. It's implied 
that he is a God. So when you come to verse 2, when it says he was in the beginning with God, well, he was created by God in the beginning. So he is the first. See, the Jehovah's Witnesses would go back to Colossians. And again, I use that word other five times that they put in brackets. Whenever they speak of things, they put other things. And the implication is among the other things that were created, Jesus was created. He's just one of the other things that were created. Because you have to try to figure out how to bring all that into, into uh, unity, right? If you're going to play some gymnastics with the text. Again, there's some um, insights we could give you from the Greek language, but to, to just to read it at face value, to me it just it clears it up. Because if you look at how he just makes the argument, he says, all things were created all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. When you look at that, it is clear. You have to do some major gymnastics with this. It is clear that what John is saying is whoever the word was, was the creator. And whoever the word was, was with God in the beginning. Yeah, well... That's where they get, that's where they have to go in Colossians 1. Yeah. Good question. No, it's a good question. And again, firstborn, you know, does not mean firstborn in time. It means in rank. So you're not talking about firstborn. A lot of people get tripped up on that, by the way. They get tripped up when they read firstborn and think, oh, he was the first one born. No, there were others born before him. Well, he was the firstborn over the dead. No, there were others that were raised from the dead. There was others raised from the dead. Nope. And in fact, if you go back just for a second, and, and this is, uh, well, there was, there was never a time the Trinity did not exist. Uh, so you can't even put the Trinity in time because the Trinity is outside of time. We're in time, but, but if you go back, for example, to Genesis 1, and uh, this is a whole other argument, opens up a whole bunch of different circumstances, but it says in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and um, you, you go through that whole text. When you read in the beginning, let me, let me, I'll show you, let's go down. To, 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 um, hold on, lost my spot. Uh, so look, look at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Okay, well, where did us come from? So there's some arguments to be made. Um, in John 1.26, who is the us? And theologians have proffered through the years, well, maybe he's talking about the plural of majesty. Have y'all heard that? Did y'all get out of bed today and say, I hope he talks about the plural of majesty? The plural of majesty would be he's speaking like of his creation. Let us. But nowhere does God speak of creation in that sense. Um, others would argue that he is t it is a clear statement of the Trinity. He is, uh, he is saying, let us, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. 
Well, they, he always existed. There was never a time that the sun, you know, I, I, when you talk about Jesus, there was never a time when the sun was not, is a theological phrase. So he was always in existence. Um, yeah, it's difficult for us to grasp because we're finite. We're finite and contingent. And so everything about us depends on something else. We wouldn't be here if, it, if, if, you know, if our life didn't depend on somebody else or something else. Um, but God has, God, there's this idea in theology called a saity, A-S-I-E-T-Y, saity, and it means that God is complete in and of himself, that God has no need for anything else uh, outside of himself, that he is completely in totality, um, uh, he is in totality complete in who he is, right? So he, 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 there's nothing else necessary for God to be God. Um, that's hard, it's hard for us to grasp, but for us, well, you do, but the, you know, you do. And the Trinity's a hard one. It's a hard one, yeah. Good questions. Good, yeah. So next week, Pastor Stewart's going to come, and he's going to solve the problem of the Trinity once and for all, definitively uh, iron that out for everyone. Uh, just to be honest again as we close, that's the hardest question to answer. Explain the Trinity to me. Well, God is one, but he is three persons. So is the Holy Spirit God? Yes. Is Jesus God? Yes. Is God God? Yes. Is the Holy Spirit Jesus? No. Is the Holy Spirit God? Yes. But is Jesus the Holy Spirit? Yes. So how are they? Wait, time out. Is the Holy Spirit Jesus? No. God the Son is God the Son, God the Spirit is God the Spirit, God the Father is God the Father. But yet, are they one? Yes, they're one. Um, the three in one, it's just, it's, it defies human understanding. So the Trinity ultimately is a matter by which you accept by faith, not blindly, because the Bible speaks of that, right? So if you go to, for example, uh, uh, lastly, and I'll, I know I keep saying lastly, but if, if you go to, to turn just, just really quick to uh, uh, Philippians chapter 1. If y'all have, absolutely have to go to the bathroom or leave, you can just walk out. Um, actually, go. I'll give you a better one. Go to Colossians. Um, excuse me, Ephesians. <laughs> They're all in the same place. Go to, go to, go to, just really quick, look at this. This is really neat. Um, Ephesians Chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ in every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless uh, before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, in which he has blessed us in the beloved. Verses 3 through 6, he's talking about God right? Blessed be the God and Father who chose us. Blessed be the God and Father who predestined us. Blessed be the God and Father who adopts us. This is God the Father. But look at verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, and according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, making known to us the mystery of his will according to the purpose he set for in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined. Who's he talking about there? He's talking about Jesus. So Paul goes very, in, in the same breath, he goes from God the Father is the God who created, God the Son is the God who brings us redemption, and then look at verse uh, 
13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Guarantee, by the way, is, is a word that means down payment. It's, it's earnest money deposit. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance till we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You notice how Paul does that? He goes, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, but he speaks as they're one. How could he do that? They are one. But each is unique, distinct in the Godhead. God the Father chooses, predestines, creates. God the Son redeems, forgives, dies on a cross, is raised from the dead. God the Spirit is the down payment who's deposited in our hearts and lives. It gives us the assurance of our salvation. Was the Holy Spirit around in the beginning? Yes. Was Jesus in the beginning? Yes. Was God the Father in the beginning? Yes, but each unique in the Godhead. So great, great, great truths in the Bible. Uh, difficult sometimes to understand, but great truths. Father, guide our time as we think about these things and dwell on them. Help our understanding to be clear. Help our minds to be sharp. Help us to know the truth for the sake of Christ.